Dear Lord God, thank you. Thank you for um, all of your good gifts to us. Thank you for the good gift of Jesus Christ, his life and his death poured out for us. We thank you, Lord, also for the good gift of the Holy Spirit. And now we ask as we turn our eyes, our eyes to Scripture, would you, through your word, open our eyes and our hearts um, to see all of what you have for us, all of your good gifts for us, um, that we would receive and be glad that we would be um, your instruments of peace in a hurting and broken world. And so we ask all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Can I close the door? Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Um, so this is actually part four of six, but it's not really enough of a series that you have to go to every single one. You can drop in and then drop out if you oh drop out if you need to. I guess. <laughs> not invi- I'm not saying do. I'm just saying if you can't be here. There you go. There you go. Thank you, Lord. Um, or if there's another class that's good. We have a lot of options. Let's just say that. So the last few um, weeks, I started off looking at there. All of these classes are going to be on the Holy Spirit, and I didn't say this before, but I really decided to develop this series because I was preaching for Pentecost this year. I think in the five o'clock service, and it was the kind of thing where I started digging into Scripture, and there was too much to say in 12 minutes. So I needed to give myself more time in which to say it and really to dig into it. And I thought for us, too, um, as the body of Christ, it would be good to look into it. Just what is going on in Scripture? Who is the Holy Spirit? And if you remember, during week one, we looked at the Trinity, three persons, one God, and the idea of the doctrine of the Trinity, which remember that the doctrine of the Trinity, which many of us have a hard time grasping and getting our minds around, it all began in worship. The first ways in which we see the Trinity mentioned in Scripture and then in the Christian um, writings that came after Scripture is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. And so with that, one of our takeaways from that is that the Holy Spirit is, above all else, not an it. Anytime I ever hear anyone say it about the Holy Spirit, I'm like, no, he's a person. He's a person. The Holy Spirit is a person as much as the Father and the Son are persons, still being God. Um, So the Holy Spirit is person and personal. Um, We talked also then on our second week, we looked at the Holy Spirit in creation, in um, hovering over the waters at the very beginning of all creation in Genesis 1. You see both the Holy Spirit and the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, because God speaks Um, things into existence. It's as though the word goes out from his mouth and the word is like this separate entity. And what you see throughout all of the Old Testament is the word of God took on this personification. They began to understand that the word of God was almost like this separate entity from God the Father. And that was really the precursor for beginning to understand that Jesus Christ is the word incarnate. So those first Jewish Christians were able to say, aha, He is the Word. He is the Logos. He is the wisdom of God. There he is. And you see John in John 1. Um, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, So we saw in creation, the Holy Spirit is there present as well, hovering over the waters. And then out of this um, nebulous nothingness, God speaks creation into existence, and the Holy Spirit is a part of this. That We talked, too, during that second week about how, because we are made in the image of God as his creatures, as the pinnacle of his creation, we human beings also have that ability to create, not out of nothing, because we're making mud pies with what we have. 
you know, playing in the dirt. Um, but when we create beautiful things, art, um, things that are officially art and things that are unofficially art, sometimes, um, well, I, think, I do think actually cooking is an art, but sometimes a labor of love is an art in and of itself, um, no matter how skilled the artist. But in that act of creating, in that act of making, we are um, showing that we are made in our maker's image, and then the Holy Spirit is present with us in some kind of way. And we talked about that because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is said to be poured out upon four different kinds of people, specifically. Um, not so much on everyone else, really just the four different kinds of people. And last week, we looked at three of those kinds, prophets, priests, and kings, and I alluded to the fourth kind in that second class because God also pours out his Holy Spirit upon Bezalel, the artist who is charged with crafting all of the different furnishings for the tabernacle of God. And so the Lord says he poured out his Holy Spirit upon him. He is empowered by the Holy Spirit from outside of himself to be able to create something beautiful. The prophets, priests, and kings, as we looked at last week, they are each also empowered prophets to speak the word of God, um, almost like we think when we think about it, I didn't talk about this last week, but it's not as though the prophets in scripture, um, it's not as though all of scripture is like a ticker tape just coming out from the human writer's mouth, um, that God's just um, putting word by word into their mouth and pulling them out. And yet with the prophetic books, you do see that there is that direct revelation. There is one of those moments in scripture where it does seem as though they're directly getting words in succession from the Lord God, and they are God's mouthpiece to his people. So you see, prophets are given the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for that task of speaking God's word and his will to his people. You see that priests are empowered by the Lord, anointed, all of Aaron's sons are anointed with oil as a sign of their being set apart, as their being holy to God for a specific purpose, uh, for a specific purpose, and there it was to act as an intermediary between the people and God the Father. And now in this new um, realm of things with Jesus Christ as our great high priest, we no longer have anyone in that role, and yet that anointing is then upon Jesus Christ and poured out upon all believers. And that's here how you get the priesthood of all believers, that we are, each one of us, emissaries and intermediaries to our broken world, pointing our broken world to our salvation in Jesus Christ. So, and then finally, as king, um, the kings in the Old Testament were anointed with God's Holy Spirit specifically for the purpose of leading his people. And the punchline of last week, we saw that all three of those roles are, of course, come to culmination in Jesus Christ himself, who is the true prophet of God as the word of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is also the true great high priest, as I just mentioned, and then the everlasting king, the king of kings and lord of lords, not just for the people of Israel, but for all the peoples of the earth. He is the one true king. And so we see at his baptism that the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Um, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him, not just specifically that he would be all those things, because you might think, well, in his perfect humanity and in his divinity, in his dual nature, does he really need the help of the Holy Spirit? Spirit. And we're not really sure why is the Holy Spirit there palpably present. But what I would say, what I really think, is that because um, in Jesus Christ you see this, this 
um, intersection point between Old and New Testaments. You see all of the promises and the anointings upon specific people for specific purposes in God's economy then fulfilled in Jesus Christ, right? And the Holy Spirit is upon him in a way it's never been upon anyone else as the anointed one, as the Messiah. And then, as believers in Jesus, we ourselves, every single one of us, as individual Christians, we are in Christ, hidden in Christ. His faith is our faith. His destiny is our destiny. His righteousness is our righteousness. And in him we have forgiveness of sins, healing, and hope of eternity. And so it's almost as though in him, that is where the Holy Spirit is found for us. This is why I get very um, twitchy when people want to talk about the Spirit, but they don't say the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit they're talking about seems to have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit of God serves as a spotlight. It's like the Holy Spirit is shy. The Holy Spirit doesn't want to be on center stage. Rather, he turns the spotlight around and directs it to Jesus Christ all throughout Um, salvation history is what we see. He's spotlighting ahead to who Jesus is um, and who he's going to be known to the people of Israel as. And for us, he spotlights us to Jesus, to our salvation in him. And so in him, it is in Christ that the Holy Spirit is then poured out upon all Christian believers. By virtue of our faith, we we don't have to do anything else except believe and receive. Receive salvation, receive forgiveness of sins, receive the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at that today. How at Pentecost does the Holy Spirit come down and make himself manifest to those first earliest Christians, to the apostles in particular, when they are there in the upper room? I'm going to take a breath. Anybody have any questions or thoughts or do you want to plug in at all? I can't find the passage, but there's one place where uh, Jesus is referred to, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. We're going to talk, and we're going to talk next week. My title for next week is Another Advocate. And um, we're going to be looking at the passages in John where Jesus talks about the promise of the Holy Spirit, which will come upon his um, followers, who will come upon his followers, and how the Holy Spirit serves in this role, um, not as another mediator in terms of the atonement of sins, but yet as, in some ways as an advocate for us as Christians. And that would go along with that as well, um, the fact that he is um, the Spirit of Jesus. So looking at, if you're ever looking, where does Pentecost happen in Scripture? It happens in Acts chapter 2. There the disciples, the apostles of Jesus have elected another apostle because of Judas' betrayal. He's no longer counted among the apostles. And Jesus is still with with them. And you see in chapter 1 of Acts, Jesus ascends. And as he ascends, he tells them to hold on, to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that in a minute. But then there they are. And um, let's just take a moment and read these four verses. Does anyone who has their glasses and can see this want to read it for the whole group? You can just read all four verses. I can read it. All right, great. Thanks, Dewitt. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Great. Thank you. Wowzers, right? That's why I called it wind and fire, oh my. Do you see the wind and fire there present in this very brief account of something that clearly can't be put into words? Do you see how there's language of analogy or metaphor? Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Words cannot contain what that sound sounded like. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, we're not really sure what was going on, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Um, And so looking at those, and then, of course, also this line as well. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you see how the Holy Spirit filled the house where they were, and then the Holy Spirit filled each one of those believers in Jesus, and then suddenly miraculous things began to happen. They began to speak in other tongues, other languages, that they had never had the opportunity to learn. So, one thing about wind and fire, oh my, is that wind and fire, when you think about it, the wind and fire are uncontrollable elements, aren't they? Um, and think before our pre-industrial era, we have some layer of cushion, some level of keeping wind and fire and flood at bay, and yet all three of those elements can be very destructive. And, um, and we might even see some of that, Lord, may it not be so, in South Carolina. But that kind of thing, imagine being in um, a less secure dwelling place, having a house that was made out of sticks and mud, and then here comes the rain and the floods, and your house is totally gone. Um, there is a sense in which all three of these elements, on one level throughout Scripture, in the Old Testament and New, there's an element of destruction. But then, also, God uses these same elements, works through them as images and metaphors for life-giving. How amazing is it that he take, uh, takes elements that could be um, feared, that people were afraid of when they came in excess. And he then um, doles them out um, to his people. Um, They are used as signs of life, signs of um, peace, signs of health, signs of holiness upon his people. Um, So there's something else about it, too. You can't really contain all of these, right? In a contain, like the water, you can contain it kind of in a vessel. Wind, you can't really contain the wind, can you, at all? Um, Fire... Is, is you, we've learned to contain it and learn to control it. Um, I think of those controlled fires that my grandparents, yes, my grandparents with the chainsaw, they'd go out to the property on Cape Cod and they'd cut down trees with the chainsaw. And I'll never forget my 80-year-old grandfather. He's now 85. But I remembered thinking, I have to be there or someone's going to get hurt. He's there with the chainsaw and, uh, and he's totally stone, de- stone deaf. He's not going to listen to this. But he doesn't have his hearing aid in because he's using the chainsaw, of course. And so you're using sign language to show, you know, please don't cut off my arm kind of thing. Um, but we would do these controlled burns to keep back the brush. And I think of that, how, how insane of us to try to think that we can control fire. Um, so we're going to look at wind and fire as symbols for the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament. Oh, and I, oops. Um, in all, of, all three of these on this slide, you see all three elements are ultimately shown throughout Scripture to be in God's control. The sign of his sovereignty, that he is Lord even over these uncontrollable elements. Um, fire itself is also seen as a sign of God's presence. And sometimes you see water and wind also used in God's presence. But fire, almost universally, is a symbol of God's presence um, and his holiness. 
You see, too, then, that all three are used by God as instruments of judgment, but also then they become instruments of life, instruments of mercy, um, in- instruments um, pointing towards hope. Um, one place, we all throughout the Old Testament, looking now first at wind, we see wind coming from the Lord. He controls the four winds from the four directions. The wind is that which causes the waters of Noah's flood to subside. It causes the Red Sea to divide. And then the wind itself is what blows the waters back over Pharaoh's army, um, freeing the Israelite people from any kind of violence at the hands of the Egyptians. In the desert, it is the wind that brings the quail so that the Israelites can have wheat, uh, meat, excuse me, they get manna later, um, or around the same time. Um, we see it with Jonah. Remember that Jonah gets swallowed by the fish and there's this huge storm. It's the wind that brings up the storm. We see that wind um, is in God's control. We see that wind here in Ezekiel 37, and again, wind in the Old Testament, the word for wind is the exact same word in the Hebrew as the word for breath and the exact same word for spirit in terms of God's Holy Spirit, and then also the same word used of the spirits of men and women. And so here in Ezekiel 37, we see um, there is this hope of resurrection, even in the Old Testament. There the Lord says to the prophet Ezekiel, he's standing out over this valley filled with dry bones, and the Lord commands him to prophesy, and prophesy specifically to the breath in these slain men, in this slain army, and then also to prophesy to the four winds. Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet. What an amazing, miraculous thing that the Lord does there through the prophet Ezekiel. You see that um, the wind, the breath, um, brings um, life into those dry bones. Um, when we get to the New Testament, we see that Jesus has authority over the natural winds. Um, remember when he's in the boat with the disciples and there's a storm, he calms the storm and they question, what sort of man is this that winds and sea obey him? Jesus has authority over um, the wind, over the destruction that could happen um, to human beings apart from God. Okay, here is the promise in Jesus Christ. Here's where we see in the New Testament wind associated specifically with the Holy Spirit. When Jesus is meeting with Nicodemus, that questioning Pharisee, at night in John chapter 3. Does someone want to read Jesus' words to Nicodemus here from John 3 for us? You see? I'll read it. Great, thanks, John. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What do you think that means? That's a toughie, huh? Any thoughts, Liz? It reminds me of that passage that says, where God says, I will have mercy on you. 
it's not it's not in our, it's not in our control. Yeah, there's this sense in which the Holy Spirit answers only to God, right? And he delights to pour his spirit out upon those who believe in him to fill us with his spirit. There also is this sense in which you think, and this is where, um, again, some people will use this verse to justify things that God would never approve of, right? And to say, oh, the spirit made me do it. And you think, hmm, I think that might be your flesh that made you do that. Um, And so this whole surprise of where does the Holy Spirit go? What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit does nothing except exalt Jesus Christ as Lord. But there is this sense of surprise and suddenness. We see this in the book of Acts where you see the Holy Spirit whisking Philip up and away. He's there with the Ethiopian eunuch on the side of the road, and suddenly the Holy Spirit whisks him away to Samaria. That's a very supernatural and miraculous example of the Holy Spirit causing someone to do something miraculous for Jesus that was very sudden and surprising. But um, I think of it, too, in my own life, when, I, uh, especially if I do something good, and I think, what in the, where does that come from? That was not me. Thank you, Lord. That was the Holy Spirit. Um, What a wonderful surprise. Um, And just kind of that image of us being sailboats filled with the wind, like the sail, you know, flapping in the wind, and then suddenly the wind fills our sails. The Holy Spirit fills us as vessels, and um, suddenly we find ourselves doing things we never thought we could ever do before um, because we didn't have the strength in our own flesh, because we were afraid or fearful. um, And I see that happening all around me at times. Any thoughts before we move on to fire? As I mentioned, fire is a sign of God's presence. You see it all throughout the Old Testament, but just to um, liken one example, look at one example, a very famous example. We're not going to read it, but there in Exodus 3, Remember that the Lord appeared to Moses specifically in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. What a mystery. Fire symbolizes this holiness of God. It's purifying. A fire will cleanse anything of, of anything. It'll just consume and burn up anything in its midst. And it's used specifically not just of the presence of the Lord, but as a sign of his own holiness. Um, we do see fire also used of judgment. Um, and here we see in his presence, before him is a devouring fire. Around God, there's the wind, is a mighty tempest. Um, our God comes. He does not keep silence. Um, God shines forth. How is that for this image of God's own presence? There is fire in his presence all throughout the Old Testament. We see it especially at Mount Sinai. We see it in his angelic warriors when Elisha sees chariots of fire. We see it that he controls fire as the creator and true God when Elijah is standing with the prophets of Baal and calling down fire upon a sacrifice. And Elijah very boldly douses the sacrifice in water, tons and tons of water, and then says, all right, check, check this out. Take a look at this. Our God is the real God. Yahweh is the one true God because he is Lord um, over all the elements. He can light something on fire if he wants to even if it's soaked wet. Um, So there is, in the New Testament, we see a prophecy made by John the Baptist about fire. And um, John the Baptist promises this um, baptism with fire. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, 
But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He, being Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We're not sure what this means, except that if we look back at the Old Testament, the fire was the holiness of God. There is this holiness upon us as God's people that has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with what we do or don't do. It has to do with what God has done in Jesus Christ on our behalf. Okay. Any thoughts about fire? Water. Water, you do see it used as um, all throughout the Old Testament as a sign of destruction. We heard about it last week. If you haven't heard Andrew's marvelous sermon from last Sunday, go ahead and listen to it online. It was fantastic. Um, and he made the very funny joke, you know, no one's ever heard of the Israelite Navy, have they? Um, or the exploits of the Navy. The water itself, just imagine, when you can't swim, water is terrifying, isn't it? Deep water water where you can't touch the bottom. I've even had that swimming in the ocean and suddenly the current has carried you out and you can't touch the bottom and at least I can swim but sometimes the waves are so strong and the undertow is so strong that um, your, your life kind of flashes before your eyes if you can't touch the bottom. There is that sense of terror around water and you see in um, Noah through Noah um, in the flood that God destroyed all of all of what was living through that flood he promises never again to destroy creation through a flood Um, but there's still this fear from the people of God about water we see it here in 2nd Samuel 22 we see it also in the Psalms and the language of this terror about water is used as a way of saying God has saved me from the water the water was going to get me and God saved me for the waves of death encompassed me the torrents of destruction assailed me the cords of Sheol entangled me the snares of death confronted me he God sent from on high he took me he drew me out of many waters how's that for an image of salvation a poem of salvation again in Psalm 42 deep calls to deep this sounds wonderful oh deep calls no this is terror deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls all your breakers and your waves have gone over me there you see the Lord is the agent of destruction there it's because of judgment um, for sin that the psalmist is saying I'm experiencing your judgment God and it's as though I'm being tumbled in the breakers in the white water of the waterfalls help me save me O God for the waters have come up to my neck How amazing then that God takes this image of destruction and even an element that was used by him for destruction um, of creation and transforms it into something that gives life. And this is true naturally as well. Of course, in a desert there's no life because there's no water. Well, God promises that there, the water will no longer be a source of destruction for his people, but rather water will only bring life, and it will bring abundant life with surprising um, swiftness and with great joy. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, from Isaiah 12, and then again from Isaiah 35, this prophecy that waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. And again, water here is seen as a sign of mercy and salvation. From Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. 
what a, a call of mercy, an extension of mercy. Um, and here in Isaiah 44, we see here, now we're getting to it, right? We see here that the water is a symbol for the Holy Spirit. I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And so what we see is that water is unpredictable, and yet water is a part of God's presence, um, part of his promise to us, part of the way he describes that he will give us his Holy Spirit. We see it in his promise to the woman at the Samaritan well in John chapter 4. He promises her living water, and that living water will well up within the one who believes in Jesus like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So we see this language the language that the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon those who believe in Jesus from outside and then spring up from within, from that deep and abiding place of faith in Jesus Christ. In John 7, Jesus also goes on to cry out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Doesn't that sound like Isaiah? Come, buy, drink, without cost. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. And John, just in case we didn't get it yet, John says, this is about the Holy Spirit. Just in case you didn't notice it, this is about the Holy Spirit. And here we see, do you see how there's this connecting point in Jesus? But they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet because the Holy Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And by glorified, John is talking about Jesus' cross, his death and resurrection, and then, of course, his ascension as well. The Holy Spirit can only come after Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so then we get to Pentecost right here. Anyone want to talk about any of this before we look back to Pentecost? Yeah, Liz. I just have a question. Yeah, please, please. So what is the word that's the same breath and spirit? I can't do it quite like Mark Janelet because my Hebrew is not super awesome. I can do it in, in, in the Greek. It's pneuma. So if you've ever heard of pneumatology with a P on the front, that's about the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Pneumatic. Yeah, that too. Yeah, like, and then also in French, that's what tires are. Pneu. Yeah. So I was, I was good with the French. Anything else? <laughs> anyway, I saw a question over here too. Did I see one on this side of the room? You want to make up a question? <laughs> Okay, Um, so when we get back to Acts chapter 2, first of all, here in Acts chapter 1, as I mentioned, you hear Jesus' promise. He says, wait, go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. One thing to say about this is that here you see that baptism in the Holy Spirit is separated from baptism in water only because the baptism in water that the disciples received was not in the name of Jesus. What was it? It was baptism for repentance. They were baptized by John the Baptist. And so their baptism in the Holy Spirit was separate from their baptism in water. And, um, and that can lead to lots of different confusing things about what is baptism in the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to take a stab at that, but I'm going to do that in another four minutes when we only have two minutes and I don't have to talk about it for very long. How cowardly is that? Uh, <laughs> water baptism in the Holy Spirit. You, um, you see um, in John, from John 3 again, and you also see in 1 John, that there is this connection 
inextricable connection between Jesus' atoning blood, his sacrifice on the cross for us, poured out for us, and then the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Do you notice these are all liquid type things? Blood, water, spirit. Um, His shed blood upon us, his Holy Spirit upon us, the waters of baptism upon us. All three testify and all three agree that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we're saved through his blood. I'll never forget Paul Zoll saying, and I might be misquoting him so he can send me an email if he's listening, but that um, it'll go online. <laughs> he might, who knows. Um, that, that, but that wherever, and I remember this from seminary, wherever you see the blood of Jesus in scripture, mentioned in scripture, um, you could replace it with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that an interesting thought? Um, Because of that same motion, it's that same offering of a gracious gift on our behalf. It's the same direction of love coming down, um, water and love pouring down from the side of Jesus, water and blood pouring down from the side of Jesus, Um, the Holy Spirit pouring out upon those who believe in Jesus at Pentecost, and then for us, throughout eternity as Christians come to faith in Jesus Christ. So what does the baptism in the Holy Spirit do? Baptism in the Holy Spirit empowers, refreshes spiritually. Baptism, um, the Holy Spirit flows from within the belly of the believer, from that place of faith in Christ, and it's poured out upon all believers in Jesus, regardless of age or gender or social economic status. And this is part of the prophecy of Joel that Peter understands to be fulfilled right there on the day of Pentecost. He gets up and he explains what's happening because people are wondering. And he says, no, they're not drunk as you think they are. That's that's their first guess. And he says, no, this is a fulfillment of what God has said through the prophet Joel. In the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Remember, not just on the prophets and priests and kings and maybe the occasional artist who's going to glorify God. No, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, on your sons and your daughters um, who shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants in those last days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. This is a promise um, that the Holy Spirit would come, and there at Pentecost the Holy Spirit came, and then for us as believers in Jesus, as we put our trust in him, the Holy Spirit is ours. As we're baptized as a sign of our beginning in the church, of our initiation in the church, then too um, we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is present in us from the point of that initiation through water baptism and faith in Jesus Christ. When we baptize babies, they don't quite yet believe yet, right? We believe for them. And then at confirmation, they get up and they say, no, really, I believe. And then um, they are truly, once and for all, they are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. How do you know that you have the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit brings those miracles, um, especially the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, those things that we can't drum up on our own, in our own flesh, those things that when you actually see them in you, or maybe you can see them better in your spouse when they do something and you just think, they don't want anything in return. How did he do that? How did she do that? This is not um, something, a gift with a string attached. This is just a gift of love. This must be from God. That's a sign of the Holy Spirit living in them. 
Um, But those miracles, what we see in the New Testament, and I believe you see it somewhat today as well, that there are miracles that are supernatural miracles. Um, And when they happen, they happen only because of the presence of God through his Holy Spirit. So some of those miracles include the fruit I mentioned. They include that holiness in the believer. They include unity in the church, anointing for specific tasks that are beyond us. Um, And you see also in those bright big miracles of the tongues, um, in the bright big miracles of healings, which do happen sometimes, um, we see the Holy Spirit present. Um, what is um, what isn't it? Well, the um, baptism in the Holy Spirit is not magic, and it is not always present with the speaking in tongues that you don't learn naturally. Um, some denominations will say it's absolutely only always present in um, when people speak in tongues, and that's actually not helpful. Because then what you find, even in those denominations, is that um, people fake it till they make it. Um, as my dad says, should about a Honda, should about a Honda, should about a Honda. And people will try to <laughs> speak in tongues, even though they don't know how to speak in tongues, because they know they believe in Jesus, and they've seen the signs of regeneration in their life, but other people are questioning those signs of regeneration. Uh, I would do that too, probably, if people were questioning whether or not I was actually a believer, just whether I had tongues or not. What we see with Cornelius, and I'm not going into Acts chapter 10 very much, but with the um, believing of Cornelius, the first Gentile to come to faith, his baptism in the Spirit happens before he's baptized in the water. And what you see there is that there is no one formula for when the Holy Spirit comes down upon a believer. But it is connected all within this conversion and initiation, repentance of sins, faith in Jesus Christ, baptism in water, baptism in the Holy Spirit. They all happen in a jumble, and it's different for each person. So then what to do if you're not sure if you are filled with the Holy Spirit? Um, Being filled with the Holy Spirit is a kind of filling and refilling. I'll never forget a professor in college saying, it's like we're dry sponges. I often feel spiritually like a a, a sponge, a dry sponge, like the one that's left out on my counter because I haven't done dishes in three days, which is terrible. But that this thirsting and a longing for God's own presence, for his own spirit to be poured out upon me. That's a sign that I need to pray. That's a sign that I haven't received what he's freely offering me. And so that doing, that praying, isn't really doing anything. It's just stopping and saying, oh, right, I need you. And so asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit is simply an act of faith. Um, just like our act of faith saying, I need you to atone for my guilt. I need you. And for me, I need him every day. I need him every hour. I need him every moment. And that empowerment by God's own Holy Spirit is a part of that act of faith. It's a part of his one directional love down towards us. There's no mistake that at Pentecost we see love coming down tangibly, descending from heaven upon those first believers. Um, And so that filling is something we ask for and something that God delights to do, not just once, but again and again and again. I could say every day, baptize me again. I need more because I need you every day. Any questions before I pray and let you go? I thought I saw one right there, yeah. If if you hear someone... uh, 
we've all, if you believe in Jesus and you're baptized, you have received the Holy Spirit. And if you're not sure if you've received the Holy Spirit, you can just say, I need some more of that. I think you gave me a low dose at first, and now I need a higher dose. Um, if you want more, there's always more to be had. And so what I would say is if you hear someone praying in tongues, yeah, they have the Holy Spirit. If you believe in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit as well. And if you want more, ask for more. He delights to hear us ask for more of him in our lives. And he delights to answer that prayer. And sometimes it's answered not necessarily with supernatural gifts like tongues or miracles, but in ways um, that bring even more life over the long haul. Does that help, Lori? Liz? Yeah, it is the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to say, I believe in Jesus. If you can say, yeah, that's really good. Thanks, Liz. I'll add that into my presentation for next time. Yeah. I think it's interesting in the Old Testament the passages, passages that you showed us, um, the reference to wind in particular was yeah. uh, in the form of destruction, but not so much in yeah. Acts relating to Pentecost. Yeah, and you know what I would say? There are a couple others where it's like, and I didn't, I, you know, there are, I weighed more heavily on the destruction of the wind because that's more of what you see, but you also see with um, hovering over the waters, see the wind bringing creation. That's the wind of the Holy Spirit to see. Um, and it's wind, breath, spirit. So which one is it at a given time? You see it also, the wind is what drives back the waters of destruction from the people of Israel. So they go out on the side of the Hope that helps. Yeah. yeah. I still want to weigh air on the side of grace in that, that this, this thing, this element that has been used for destruction, God then uses it as a symbol for his life-giving Holy Spirit. Let's pray real quick. Dear Lord Jesus, um, we ask that you would lead and guide us now throughout our weeks as we seek to follow you. We ask, Lord, that you would pour out your own Holy Spirit upon us once again. We'll ask for more. Lord, always more of you in our lives is what we're seeking. And so would you pour out upon us your grace, your own Holy Spirit, empower us to do your will, make us holy even as you are holy, do what only you can do. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.